from time to time. I'm going to ambush folks uh, without giving them much notice, and I've done so today with wonderful Micah. So, Micah, can you please join me over here? This is Micah Nagel. Would you say hello, please, to her? Say hi, Micah. And Micah is a long-term member of the class and so on, and this isn't going to hurt too much. And I just want you to get to know Micah a little bit, so I'll give you this. And we're just going to talk a little bit. And um, I just want you, Micah greets uh, folks as they come uh, through, but I'd like to, for you to get to know her a little bit more. So, Micah, tell us, uh, where were you born? Let's start there. I was born in Houston in St. Joseph Hospital. So you're a native Houstonian. How many native Houstonians are here? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. So um, been in Texas all your life. And um, did you have brothers and sisters? Yes. I think I know a little bit. Tell me about them. I only have Jan, and she's somewhere back there. Where's Jan? That's Jan. Jan thinks she's safe because she's in the back row. But we can get Jan. And Jan, is Jan your younger sister? Oh, shut up. (laughs) So how's this going so far? (laughs) So uh, Micah has uh, kids. Tell us about them. I have two men. Yes. Christian and Ashton. And they're great kids. Uh, her kids and my kids grew up together, and they, uh, they were in jail together, were they? <laughs> great, 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 great kids, both of them. And uh, grandkids? I have two girls. Oh, that's too bad. Girls, I'm sorry to hear that. And, uh, Micah, you've been here at Sagemont for how long? 41 years. Come on. You came when you were six months old. <laughs> 41, holy Toledo. And why did you, what brought you to Sagemont to begin with? I'm just curious. It was my husband. This is where he went to church. So tell us a little bit about your husband. He was an awesome man. Yes, he was. And his name is Dan, and he passed away when? Four years ago. Just four years ago. Dan was one of our greatest, one most wonderful members. This was a surprise, wasn't it, to everybody? It was rather sudden. But I didn't realize it was, it was four years. See, we're doing this because I want you to know the folks you sit next to, the flesh and blood, real live people, right? So uh, has the Lord been helpful to you over these four years? Yes. Yeah. What about, has it been good to be part of a church in these how have people around here helped you? I'm just in, in well, this Well, they're stuff. always here for me. If I ever yeah. need anything, they're always here. And you would be. I know you the same way. And you became a Christian when? Do you remember? It was um, when Dan brought me to this church, and it was when I got under the teaching of Brother John. Yeah. And I realized I was a sinner and ah, I needed a Savior. No kidding. That was one. And, and being a believer... This is hard to say, but what uh, what is one of the the best things about being a Christian? Knowing that you have Jesus by your side when yes. there's nobody else. No matter what happens, no matter what happens. Well, that's Micah, and she's a doll, and you are in good company. I'll tell you that to be in the presence of someone like this. David, that's a great question, and I want you all to feel free. To just shout out and stop. Micah, before you go, something just popped into my brain. What hobbies does David have? I mean, uh, I got that wrong. What do you do? What do you like to do? Well, lately I've been playing canasta. It's kind of fun. You gamble? (laughs) Canasta, that's a card game Mm -hmm. for older people. I mean, who plays canasta for crying out loud? No, that's good. That's good. Anything else? I do both. Oh, the kids. Yeah. I'm on the church Bowling and so on. It's terrible. And what three things do you most dislike about Chuck, Brother Chuck? No. <laughs> it's well, not fair. The only thing I can think of is that when I tell him something, he can't always hear me. This is, what would you say? 
Yeah. Well, this is very true. It's not fair to ask that of Micah, because how could she limit it to three? Yeah. Listen, uh, this is kind of a tough question, but what, uh, what could we pray for you? What, what, at this point, what, what is there that we could pray for you? having a hard time um, with my husband's death, even though it's been four years. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. How long were you married? Uh, 37 years. 37. We should pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for Micah. Thank you for saving her, rescuing her. You saw her to be yours from before time. I'm glad she caught up with you, met you at a certain point in time. Thank you for entrusting her to us. She's a blessing, and I'm so glad that we've been able to be a blessing to her, too, during difficult times. Thank you for her honesty. Four years is just a period of time, but there's no time limit on grief. And you, acquainted with grief, understand her hurt heart. She's running to you with it. Best place to go. I pray you would continue to wrap your arms around her, you being her heavenly husband. And I pray, oh God, you would support her, be her supply, provide comfort, give her daily bread each day, just what she needs to go on. I pray you give her hope and healing and help. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Micah. Wonderful, wonderful. That is one special kid. Um, Micah, thanks for getting us going. She uh, was the guinea pig today. We're going to keep doing this because, look, we find out a little bit of how we could pray for one another and how we all ended up in this place. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Micah, for doing that. She's a doll. I've known Micah for uh, like a million years when my hair was a different color and don't really know what Micah's real hair color is. <laughs> I'm just saying. <clears throat> so, so we are, <laughs> we, I am an equal opportunity offender. I offend all kinds of people. Folks, we are in Second Samuel. How do you like the slide right up in front of you? Yeah, you ain't seen nothing. We're going high tech. Look at this. Uh, it's a new thing that we have, and I have the power. I push a green button, and it will advance slides, which we hope will be helpful to you as we go through the lesson. My only concern is when I push this button that my garage door will open. <laughs> That's my only hesitation here. Second Samuel begins with verse 1. Uh, yours should begin with something like then. The word then should be in there. It's a time indicator. It means something came before, but this is a continuation of it. What came before? Lots of stuff. The most recent event in the prior chapter was a son of Saul, prior king, Ish-bosheth, weak, kind of propped up, king of the northern tribes, was murdered. Now the northern tribes decide to unify and support David. The southern tribe of Judah already did. The northern tribes decide to get it together and join with them in having a unified monarchy. That's kind of what's going on. So then all the tribe, all the tribes, how many are there? Twelve. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. So look at this. It's not the best map, but I'm just a beginner. But I'll be able to show you some stuff. I'll give you some geographic frames of references. This is Israel. This elongated body of water to the bottom of your screen, that's the Dead Sea. The one up above it as you go up, a smaller body of water, that's the Sea of Galilee. Just to let you know what's going on, if you start at the bottom of your screen, off the screen, you're in Egypt on the bottom. If you, if you travel to the left uh, and... Go along the Mediterranean Sea where it says the way of the land of the Philistines. That's Gaza. Ancient Gaza is the same location as modern-day Gaza. You read about the trouble between Israel and Gaza today. Maybe that's where it is. If you keep going north all the way up, 
you'll get on the uh, top left of your map, you're in Lebanon. Lebanon. And if you dip around and uh, go around to the top right, that's Syria. And if you dip down from Syria, you're in Jordan. So that gives you an idea. Israel's there uh, in the middle, surrounded by these particular countries. David had established his first capital down here in Hebron. So Hebron, a little hard to see on the map, but it's about midway up from the bottom of the Dead Sea, right to the left of it, which would be west. That's Hebron. And uh, that's where he was for a certain number of years, which we'll read about. Why did he go to Hebron? Well, that was allotted to the tribal territory of Judah, and that's the tribe David is a member of. So that's where he is. And uh, all the tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron. Now, in order to do that, they traveled down south. The only tribe down there, well, look at that, I almost killed myself. The only tribe down there, but you're worth it. And, you, and So the only tribe down there were Hebron, that's Judah. So the other tribes, the northern tribes, they came, they came from up north, down south, in order to do what you'll see here, reference to David. So that's what's kind of going on. Just to give you a time reference, uh, to round it off, we're talking about 1,000 years before Christ. So approximately 3,000 years ago is what we're reading. Uh, you are familiar with this little annotation, 1,000 B.C., before Christ. Have you ever seen B.C.E.? Yeah. So I'll tell you what that is in case some people have asked. Um, before Christ uh, is a way of dating time around the time of Christ. But if you're a denier of Christ, you don't like that. That's my people. Stiff-necked Jewish people. Not all of us. Hang in there. Don't give up on us yet, but most of us. And therefore, we have uh, eliminated the B.C. nomenclature and replaced it with B.C.E., which means not before Christ, but before the common era. That's what it's, in case you see that, that's what it means. So anyway, it's about a 1,000 years before the time of Christ that we're reading about. And in verses 1 and 2, you will see three stated reasons why all the tribes finally decide to unify around David as king. And so you can see in verse 1, it says, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. So that is the first reason why they went south to Hebron to rally around David. Here's what they said. Look at here. We've been at odds for a long time. There have been hostilities. Come on. Let's get it together. Let's make peace. After all, we're kinfolk. That's essentially what they're saying. And they're right. They're all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they're using that point of commonality to state their uh, new support for David. Second reason why they go down there to support him is indicated in verse 2. Previously, they say, when David was king over us, you, David, were the one who led Israel out and in. Though Saul was king, he oftentimes abdicated his kingly role. He was irrational at times and didn't do what he's supposed to do. I mean, you remember, who was it who confronted Goliath? It was David, even as a young boy. It wasn't the king who should have. It wasn't King Saul. And then in uh, battling against the Philistines, it really was David who took the initiative in this. And so the tribes up north are saying, Ish-bosheth is dead. And by the way, he was a weak king, they're saying. He was just propped up. He wasn't good. We really need a strong leader. David is that strong leader who has demonstrated military competence and leadership um, capability. And so that's another reason why they wanted to rally behind David. And then the third reason is just what it says also in verse 2, and the Lord said to you, you will be shepherd, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So finally, they're making recourse to the word of God. They hadn't. God stated his choice to succeed Saul. It's David. The northern tribes pretty much told God, forget it. They knew what God said, but like we today, they did their own thing. Finally, they're realizing it hasn't really worked out too well for us. They're remembering the and God said part of the equation. Now they want to do what God said, and they want to throw their support behind David. 
So those are the reasons, it seems to me, why they went south to Hebron, all 12 tribes to support David. And in what I just shared with you, I think we can identify three prerequisites for leadership that apply not only to David, but across the board. So it seems to me the potential leader, anyone who would seek to lead God's people in any capacity, the potential leader, number one, must have a spiritual connection to the people he will lead. In David's case, you know, there was a blood connection, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I think the application is that there be a spiritual connectedness, a kind of a kind of a sameness spiritually. Meaning, I mean, if a church is looking to uh, interview various ones for ministerial positions, uh, that church would be making a mistake to hire someone who theologically was not on the same sheet. So I hope around here we I hope around here we we do that pretty well. We interview potential candidates for ministerial positions. We're not trying to persuade that person what to believe or not. It's too late at that point. If that person is applying for a position here, we want to know what that person believes now, and we simply want to see if it uh, corresponds with what this church believes. We don't want to Could you imagine having a minister on staff? whose point of view and fundamental biblical areas was different than ours. We'd have chaos all the time. So there has to be a kind of spiritual affinity between leader and congregation. Otherwise, that potential leader should not be the actual leader of that flock. Secondly, the potential leader must have uh, demonstrated leadership qualities. You see, David did. They were not seeking to put their support, the tribes that is, behind a rookie a guy fresh out of school, no way. This was David who demonstrated leadership experience before. Sometimes you make a mistake because you look at a candidate for a position and that candidate is quite attractive and looks good on the outside and all the rest, but you have to kind of look past that and you have to look to life experience. In the scriptures, there's this beautiful poetic analogy about God keeping us in his quiver like an arrow until he makes us like a polished shaft. I remember I used to minister with an organization called the Navigators. In fact, my brother's dad was one of the pioneers in that organization long before I got there. And, uh, and uh, I, I thought it was hot. Uh, <laughs> I thought it had something to offer. And all the Navigators would have me do you know, there'd be conferences, and I felt like, man, I could lead a Bible study. I want to lead a Bible study. I don't have to be the key guy on the platform, but I want to do a Bible study. Man, it was years. Uh, I would uh, they had me, hey, Stuart, get that broom. You need to sweep the floor. Stuart, they set up the chairs over there, stuff like that. This was going on for years and years. And I, I was getting mad, which really proved that I needed that uh, ministry of uh, time in grade, as we used to say in the military, staying in the quiver. You can be caused to stumble if you get a role that is before the time and go to your head. And so David uh, demonstrated leadership uh, qualities. And uh, then thirdly, uh, the potential leader must show evidence of being called by God. Now, if you ask ministers today who are called by God, if you ask them to define what, it, what is the call, you'll not get a satisfying answer from anybody. <laughs> it's very interesting. You can't define the call but you can see evidence of the call, a big difference. So you don't know what it is, but you know you got it or you don't, <laughs> that kind of deal. And it'll be noticeable. Well, uh, that David was called to this very significant role was certainly noticeable. And I think uh, people looking for potential leader ought to, ought to be looking for that as well. Uh, it's an indefinable kind of a quality, but there ought to be a clear indication that God has called out that particular person to lead out. So anyway, that's, those are the characteristics, it seems to me, they saw in David's life. And therefore, they were rallying behind him. So now verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. You may be tired of hearing about this guy's anointings because there are three of them. This is the third. And so the first anointing 
kind of maybe was like this one. It was when David was young. In fact, it was 15 to 20 years before what we're reading about in 2 Samuel chapter 5. About 20 years ago, he was anointed. It was in 1 Samuel chapter 16, a long time ago. God told Samuel, his prophet, to do it. David was. was rather private. Though anointed, though God's choice, people didn't rally behind him yet. And frankly, he wasn't ready to move into the Oval Office just yet. He had a bunch of stuff that had to be worked out in his life. Anyway, that's the first anointing. Second one took place also at Hebron. And uh, that was when the tribe of Judah acknowledged David to be their king, king of Judah. But he was not yet the king of unified Israel, north and south. Israel, north. The tribes in Israel in the north are called Israel. In the south, Judah. So David, the second anointing was not yet a as king of all of Israel. Now, the third anointing, that's the one we're reading about here. This is when David was older. And he's being anointed now by all the tribes. Finally, he'll be the king of united Israel, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. What took God so long? Well, listen here. You can go to school and Bible college and seminary and all the rest. But if you don't have sufficient life experience, how dare you think you can lead the people of God? David had a lot to learn through the school of hard knocks. He had to learn dependence on God. He had to learn to deal with uh, injustice, unrighteousness. He had to learn not to take his own revenge. He had to learn. You know what he had to learn? This is the toughest thing for anybody. He had to learn to wait. Oh, he can go to war. That's not so hard. Wait, that's hard. So it took 20 years for that to happen, and now he's ready to move into the palace and assume responsibilities. As the, he was a shepherd boy. He learned a bunch of stuff. He fought off lions and bears, protected the sheep, and that gave him the skills to deal with Goliath. But he's got a big giant-sized challenge now, bigger than Goliath. He's got to shepherd the people of God. God says, I took you from the sheepfolds to shepherd my people Israel. But you don't go boom. You don't go immediately from the sheepfold into the palace leading the 12 tribes of Israel. That took 20 years. 20 years. I like young people. I used to be one. And we have to make way for young people, but not too soon, in time. That's all. Us older people with this color hair, we've got to make way. But don't be too quick. You have, to, you have to bring people, younger people, along. They're slick. Young people know how to use this stuff. I had to really work on it. But they don't have enough life experience to know how to shepherd the people of God yet. They will. So we want to mentor them. We want to help them out and all the rest. You give a young person a role before his time, that young person will stumble all over it. So you've got to be careful. You've got to get him sweeping floors first and setting up chairs. See what his attitude about that is. Oh, that's what happened with David, by the way. So anyway, now... After years of waiting and preparation have transpired, now he's ready to take his place as the shepherd of God's people. And in verse 4, we read, David was 30 years old when he became king. Not an old man, by no means, 30 years old. And he reigned for 40 years. He, he, ruled, he reigned for 70. You know, there comes a time when you've got to step down. Does that, that mean you stop serving God? No, you never do. Oh, no. But you just serve in different capacities. David served until he was 70. That's what it says. How did it break down? Well, verse 5 tells us, at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. So he was south, in the south, Hebron being his capital for seven and a half years. Then it says, and then in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over Israel and Judah. Put 33 together with seven and a half, it's rounded off. You get 40 years. He served for 40 years. So I found this slide. It perplexed me a little bit, uh, but it's interesting. David, it says, was the first king to rule over both Judah and Israel. His son, Solomon, would be the only other king to do this. So first I thought, that's not right. Saul was the first king. Didn't he rule over Israel and Judah? 
Then I thought, no, not exactly. Because of his irrational outburst with regard to David, sides were chosen. And David's boys, the tribe of Judah, followed David. Saul's Saul. So it really, in essence, was a divided kingdom until David came to the throne when for the first time all 12 tribes were united and then he passed on that wonderful legacy to his son Solomon who was the second and only other king who led a united monarchy in Israel. And then when Solomon died, his son messed it up. That's a whole story for another day. His son messed it up, forced people to divide again. And so after Solomon, the monarchy of Israel was divided again. So you read about a list of kings of Judah, kings of Israel. If you're reading the Old Testament, it gets confused. That's why. Because they didn't have a leader who could hold them together. That's what it is. One of the marks of a leader is to unite people. Hmm. Love to have a leader like that. A leader who divides. Mm. Not exactly a good mark of leadership, but okay. Uh, Now it says in verse 6, now the king and his men went to Jerusalem. Now that's interesting because there was no such place named Jerusalem then. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. So I'll show you this map. This is a cool map, a little clear. Hey, aren't you guys... Don't you regret that you're seated here? I should have told you this before. By the way, nice to see you in the cheap seats. That's what happened. These are the cheap seats. You got to go here. But we got a chiropractor. He'll see you later if we are a neck problem. So here's the deal. You can see David is over there in Hebron. You see right there? Here, help me point to this right here. It may, it may feel like you're here for a purpose. Thank you. So he went from Hebron. Then he went up. You see where Jerusalem is there? He went there. His capital is in Hebron. He went up to Jerusalem. What's up? Why did he do it? We'll talk about it. Why wasn't it called Jerusalem? Well, because people lived there named the Jebusites. So the place was called, guess, Jebus. It's called Jebus. So who are the Jebusites? Okay, they're a branch of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were a specific tribe, but it's also an umbrella term for all of the people groups who were in the land before the Israelites arrived. So you've read of people groups like the... um, uh, Amorites, the Hittites, the Hevites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites. Have you remembered all those? Malachites, termites. Uh, th- those are Can- they were all Canaanites. In fact, the land was called not Israel. The land was called the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan. And so the Jebusites were one of the people groups. They lived in Jebus. Jebus was a good place to live because it was a walled city on a hill, which makes it defendable not only was it a walled city on a hill it was surrounded on three sides by valleys this gives you a military advantage one of the valleys some of you have been there it's called the kidron valley kidron valley okay so that's jebus and the jebusites and uh david decides uh he's going to go to jerusalem and make it his capital Why did David do this? Well, we'll talk about it. Look at that. Why did David do this? Here's the first reason. Uh, This is like the coolest thing. You know, uh, I tell my wife, I spent more time on these slides and figuring out how to work this gizmo than the actual Bible study. (laughs) So one of the reasons is centralization, it seems to me. Look, it's, there's no shame in being politically astute. You can be a strong believer and still have good political instincts. David did. He no longer wants to be seen just as the king of Judah in the south. He wants to be seen as the king of all. Therefore, he moves his capital to a more centralized location. In fact, Jerusalem is right on the border between the tribe of Judah in the south and the tribe of Benjamin in the north. That's where Jerusalem is. So that's one reason. Centralize his government. A second reason, it seems to me, why he went to Jerusalem is defendability. Again, he's a strong military leader. I mentioned to you, it's a walled city. It's on an elevated position. It's surrounded on three sides by valleys. Now, that's a good spot to defend. If under attack, surely David knows he will soon be. There's still Philistines in the land. They don't like David for beans, I'm sure. And so they're going to attack. And David says, 
because I think we can defend that place. And then the third reason why he went up there is obedience. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to show you in just a second. God made it clear before the Israelites went on a conquest of this land of promise, God told them a bunch of stuff to do, one of which was conquer it and remove all of the native people's from the land deal with them now i know that raises ethical questions we have discussed those before we can't in the confines of our class today let me just tell you we can make a defense for god it was not a uh, it's not a racial thing some people being better than others that's not why i did it at all god had reasons for mandating the extermination of the people in the land uh, again, we can talk about it some other time. I'm not trying to cop out here. Just That's just not the theme for the day. And I want to show you how David is the first king of Israel who did what God told him to do. His predecessors failed to do what God mandated. For instance, Exodus chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. Let me read it to you. God says, for my angel will go before you. He's talking to the Israelites. My angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the, and now here all the people groups are mentioned, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hevites, and here's that group under our consideration, Jebusites. And I will completely destroy them. That's what God said. You have a problem, but well, you're going to have to deal with God. That's what God said. I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods. Now, that's the reason behind all this. He has a people chosen for what purpose? chosen to be the people from whom Messiah would come. It's very important that that people group not become so spiritually corrupted that you can't even find the Messiah. And he knew the proclivity of Israel to worship the gods of the land, to intermarry and all this other kind of stuff. And therefore, God said, I shall remove the temptation because I have bigger redemptive purposes for the world. And therefore, God commanded this destroy them you shall not worship their gods nor serve them nor do according to their deeds but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces they didn't do it furthermore god says in deuteronomy chapter 20 17 and 18 you shall utterly destroy them here the people groups are mentioned again the hittite the amorite the canaanite the Perizzite, the hevite and the jebusite as the Lord your God has commanded you so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, amongst which was burn your children in the fire to appease the gods. Yeah, detestable things which they have done for their God so that you would sin against the Lord your God. That's what God said. The people failed to do it. So says Joshua 15, verse 63. Now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. They failed to do it. We read this again, Judges chapter 1, verse 21. But the sons of Benjamin, northern tribes, southern tribes, both failed. Sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. David did what his predecessors failed to do. He obeyed God in confronting and seeking to conquer and remove the Jebusites from the land. Now, when you're newly elected to political office, you want to get off to a good start. And uh, David was no different. Therefore, it seems to me, David immediately did some pretty great uh, things, one of which was to unify the country. Wouldn't it be great if ours was unified? It's not. I mean, we are divided. It's not so much north-south anymore. It's deeper than that. It's racial. It's, you know, political. <clears throat> Sometimes I lose hope, I must tell you, of a unified America. But then I just pray anyway. Because God's not bound to my limitations, even in my thinking. I just pray, oh, God, I don't know how this is going to happen, but would you bless us by pulling us together? Wouldn't that be a blessing to get along? I didn't say compromise. I didn't say that. Wouldn't it be, I don't know, maybe we need a good war. War seems to do it. Then you're suddenly next to people who you maybe wouldn't live 
in the same neighborhood, but then you're suddenly facing a common enemy that kind of pulls you together. I'm not praying for war. I'm being a little facetious. I pray that God would have mercy on our country. We are divided. It's not good. David pulled it off. He unified the country. Second thing he did, he established Jerusalem as his capital. And that was in compliance with what God said. His predecessors failed to do it. <clears throat> Very interesting. You know, uh, our country uh, president a few months ago decided to move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in recognition of it as capital. Now, listen here. I don't think who you vote for is a test of whether you're a Christian or not. I hope we never get into that. It's a matter of Christian liberty. You prayerfully make the best decision you could based on the data you have. So whatever you think of our present president, uh, I would commend him for this decision. That is the move of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I'm reading 2 Samuel 5, and it looks like that's the decision David made 3,000 years ago. All our president did was nothing so radical, even though the world community made it look like it is. All he's doing is getting biblically consistent in this regard. I didn't say in others. And if you're not a person of the Bible, how about a person of, the, of history? You can go to the city of David today. We go to Israel, Lord willing, in October. I'll show some of you and others of you have been there. City of David. Archaeologists have found all kinds of evidence of David's palace being erected there and evidences of his administration being centered there. For crying out loud, you can forget about the Bible just for a second. If you want to be historically accurate, if not biblically accurate, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Do you know Israel is the only country in the world taking flack for its own sovereign choice of where its capital will be. It's like some foreign entity calling us up and say, hey, you Americans, thanks for answering. This Washington, D.C. locale for your capital irritates us. We want you to move it to Clute. <laughs> I mean, we... What? You, what? What nation has a right to tell another sovereign nation where to put its capital? Th that has never been said to any other nation in the world but Israel. It's neither biblically consistent nor historically consistent. David established his capital there 3,000. There's been a Jewish presence in that place for 3,000 years. So to say that my people are occupying someone else's land flies in the face of the Bible and of history. Now, you can think that if you want, but just don't blame it on the Bible. And you need a history lesson. We didn't just show up in 1948. We came back in 1948. Now, folks, that's important because Jesus is coming back to the same place. He's not coming back to Clute, even though they, they have a mosquito festival. Did you know that? Which is a very cool deal for sick people. But Jesus is coming back to the capital of Israel, uh, why, why do most nations have their capitals, have their embassies in Tel Aviv? Tel Aviv is on the uh, Mediterranean coast. Tel Aviv, I can't show you on the maps because it didn't exist. <laughs> it was sand dunes, and it became a city in, when Israel became a modern state in 1948. They built it up, Tel Aviv. And uh, why are nations putting their embassies there instead of Jerusalem? Because Tel Aviv is not significant, <laughs> historically or biblically. That's the point. If Jerusalem is referred to as the holy city, Tel Aviv is the unholy city. Uh, Tel Aviv has been voted year after year as one of the world's most gay-friendly cities. When there's a gay pride parade in Tel Aviv, there are hundreds of thousands of people who show up. Tel Aviv is... Austin on steroids. That's what Tel Aviv is. So if you establish your embassy in Tel Aviv, you're not, you're not offending Muslim people because it's non-religious. You're not offending Christian people. You're not offending Jewish people. It's a non-religious place. It's Austin, Texas, for crying out loud. And so that's why people are put their embassies over there. Interesting, some other countries have followed 
suit, followed our lead, and have moved their embassies. One is Guatemala. By the, I forgot about that, baby. Yay! Let's hear it for Guatemala. I married these people, and I didn't like them at the time. But <laughs> now, yeah, baby, Guatemala. You know about this? Okay, baby. And then uh, Paraguay did. And you hear this? But then they changed their mind. The new, the, new, <laughs> the new leader of Paraguay has decided, eh, we didn't really mean it, that whole move of our embassy. So they're going back to Tel Aviv. And the prime minister of Israel, Netanyahu, is mad. He tried to control it, but you can hear him on the news and stuff. Oh, my goodness. That's a real slap in the face. Why did Paraguay choose to do this? I don't have any idea. Some pressure from different people. But Guatemala is standing strong. Okay, so... David moves to the capital there. He established Jerusalem as the capital. And then the third thing he does, which is really cool, he did what his predecessors failed to do. As I mentioned, he removed people from the land who would have caused God's chosen people to become spiritually so defiled that they would be unrecognizable as the people from whom Messiah would, Jesus would eventually come. So David got off to a really, really good, good start. Now, the people, the Jebusites, this is what it says. They said to David, we're in verse 6, they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away. I'm smiling because that is a major sarcastic insult. They're essentially saying to David, bring it on. Better men than you've tried. In fact, we are so unconquerable, even if we posted on our ramparts, disabled people, the blind and the lame, we still beat the snot out of you. I paraphrased a little bit. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Yeah, so that's arrogance right there. That's a big mistake because the very next verse says, verse 7, nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of, does your Bible say Zion? If it does, that's probably the first time in the Bible the term is used. Yeah. In fact, we don't really know what it means, Zion. It probably means hill fortress, something like that, because it was a name assigned to Jebus only. But since then, Zion has come now to represent the city of Jerusalem and the entirety of Israel. So have you, well, you, you know, we're marching to Zion. So that's, that's a, now it's a, uh, that's a reference now even to the new Jerusalem. See how the term has expanded? Initially, it was just this little fortified hill over there. And now it's a reference to, well, you've heard the term Zionism, Jews going up into the land, particularly after the Holocaust. Stuff like that. See, the term has broadened. But initially, it was a reference to Jebus. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. How? Well, we'll get to it, but not today. Because I got some cool slides. And all I got to do is push the green button and you'll see them. But uh, we'll close uh, with something else today. But I want to show you a video next week about how David and the boys captured this otherwise impregnable city. And it's a little video that I think will be interesting to you. Yeah, Barry. Go ahead. Yes, he did. I'm going to tell you, first of all, that guy, Barry is an insightful student of the Bible. He just is. Just the question I was hoping would not be asked. <laughs> because I don't really have the answer. But Barry is correct. Before David got there, made it his capital, remember when he did the deal with Goliath? He cuts off his head. He brings it to Jerusalem. Why? And, and, and Barry is suggesting, and I think it's as valid as anything I've read, it's kind of a sign, this is what I'm going to do to everybody else over there. Could be. I don't. Maybe it's kind of like a down payment sort of a thing of what's going to come. Really good, Barry. That's really good. That would be enough for today. I, would, I was just. So here's the deal. 
We'll talk about how David did it, but first I want you to just take a look at that first word in verse 7. Nevertheless, the whole history of God's people is a divine nevertheless. Now, let's not make this just a history lesson. Let's end with this application because as with David, so too God is with us today. David is running up against an insurmountable obstacle. It cannot be done. Even the blind and the lame will successfully resist David. Uh, What's he going to do? It doesn't look like he's going to make it. Nevertheless, that's the whole um, pattern of God's dealings with his people. So here I happen to know there are folks facing big, insurmountable issues. Some of us just prayed with Mikey back there. Mikey's just a super guy. And he fell and broke his shoulder and not getting much relief even to this day. Lots of pain, a jagged tear and can't sleep and all the rest. You can pray for Mike. That's Mike right there. That's one faithful guy. And uh, it's kind of an insurmountable thing. Nevertheless, see, you may have gotten a diagnosis. So many of our people are getting cancer diagnoses. You know about Maureen Schneider and Brother Chuck's wife, a fairly serious uh, a cancer diagnosis, and his two brothers, uh, one of whom was in our last class, both diagnosed with cancer. One already had a procedure. The other is scheduled for the end of the month. And many of you similarly situated. You may have just been called in by your employer, and as a surprise, you got laid off. And uh, what are you going to do now? You're of a certain age, and maybe you're not feeling as marketable as you used to be. What are you, what are you going to do? These are, the, these are like these fortress-like challenges, which how are you going to deal with this? What's up? You may have found out that a child, a grandchild whom you love, is on the run from God. It's just shocking your system. It's shaking you up. You would do anything from to keep it from happening, and there it is. You get this call in the night, and a child has made a decision, or grandchild, and the wife and I have been there. We know about this. It's a big, it's a big wall of uh, challenge. You can't climb it. You can't, you, can't, you can't get on top. And then you have to remember the divine, nevertheless, because though the circumstances constrain us, they do not God. He's only limited by... His unlimited power. He's only limited by his unlimited limited compassion. He's only limited by his unlimited omniscience. He knows of all things. He, he is not limited in the outworking of his redemptive plan. Um, what I want to take away from this text, it isn't about jebus and walls and fights and all that stuff. It's about real life for us because... Uh, As the Jebusites mocked David, I think the evil one does the same to us. You Christ ones who claim that he's good and worthy of your worship, how you feel now with your cancer diagnosis? How do you feel now with the absence of your husband? How do you feel now with your job layoff? How do you feel now with your rebellious teenager? Where is that God? See, he's mocking from the hill. He's mocking, he's mocking. You need to preach. I need to preach too. Satan, I have to say, get thee behind me, evil one. For if my God has permitted me to be in this situation, he sees value in it. I don't have to, and I don't have to have the strength to overcome it. I belong to the highest authority. And you say to Satan, do you know who you're messing with? I'm a child of the king. I'm royalty, not by inherent nature. It's been imputed to my account Our father, Jesus' father, is my father. Do you know who you're messing with? And if we had the time, many here would give illustrations of the the divine nevertheless in your life. You get to a certain point in your life, and you don't think it's going to pass, and you don't know how you're going to get through it, get out of it. You don't even want to get up the next day. You don't have the strength to take the next breath of air, and yet time has passed. And you could say, let me tell you about the divine nevertheless. My world was caving in. I was being suffocated. I didn't think I was going to make it. Nevertheless, God saw me through. Now, unbelievers cannot 
invoke the divine nevertheless apart from the bridge builder to almighty God, Jesus Christ. Can you see he saved us not just from the penalty of our sin, which surely would have been enough. He saved us from the hopelessness of the throes of life. Bring it on, Jebusites. You will be conquered. There is victory in Jesus because of the divine, nevertheless. Now, next week, Lord willing, if we get here, and the Lord hasn't come first, we will continue this lesson. And I want to show you some some slides that I think will help uh, for us to see how did David, by God's doing, pull this off. So that'll be next week, Lord willing. Until then, Lord Jesus, we bow before you for good reason. For you are enthroned, finally, in your rightful place. You too are the anointed of the Father, Messiah, the anointed one. And yet so many have not recognized you as king of kings even yet. Well, we have by your grace, and it's our job to help others to do the same. That's our job. Help us to do better at it. We look forward to the time when you, King Jesus, are acknowledged as such, for you deserve it. Till that happens, I hope you're pleased with the worship we give to you. And we intend to do it no matter what the circumstances may be that befall us. For nothing comes arbitrarily. If you permit something, you have something good in mind through it, whether we see it or not. Well, God, we don't understand the circumstances, but we know enough of your heart. If you didn't withhold your only begotten son to get one such as us, how will you not also with him freely give us all things? Oh, God, give us that word in our heart and in our mouth, the divine nevertheless. My back was up against the wall. I didn't see my way out. Nevertheless, the Lord rescued me. The Lord saved me. The Lord delivered me. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for doing all those things. Thank you for being our deliverer. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time.